Who is Jesus? There are a number of ways that that could be answered. There are some people that would say that he is not even a good person, that he was a deceiver and a blasphemer. Others would take the position that he wasn't bad, but he was just a good man. And yet that really is not a possibility. Because if he was a liar and a deceiver, he's not a good person. And he certainly made claims to be more than just a good man. And so he is more than a good man, as he said, or else he is just a liar and a deceiver. More correctly, you can come up with the idea, he is our Lord. And you would be right. Or you might say he is the Christ. He's our Savior. But it seems to me that if you don't come to understand that he is God, you don't fully understand him, and you don't really know him. I want to talk with you, if I may, this evening about the subject, Jesus is God. And we're going to use a lot of scriptures and to kind of help us get through all the scriptures and cover all the material. We're going to have most of it out on the the overhead, but you might want to have your Bible so you can look at a reference, or maybe perhaps we'll say some things that you'll want to make note of. And I think and hope that when we get through, there will be no doubt that Jesus is God and that the Scriptures show that, and that you will perhaps have a greater appreciation even for God and what He has done for us. So let me begin by just telling you, first of all, that Jesus is God, and I want us to first of all just point out and see that the New Testament affirms that Jesus is God. I have a book that a Muslim wrote, and in it, and he later converted, but he was saying Jesus never even claimed to be God. But that's not true. The New Testament certainly affirms that Jesus was God. I want to begin in the book of John in the first chapter in verse 1. And this passage really just solves it all if you look at it. John 1 and 1, John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I suspect that it's taught in logic, and if not in logic, I didn't, I didn't take logic, uh, but I took enough math that I learned that A is equal to B, and if B is equal to C, then the equations we're working is A is equal to C. And it's quite evident as you look at John 1 that the word that he's talking about is Jesus. In about verse 14, he talks about how the Word became flesh, and we understand that he's talking about Jesus. And so the Word is Jesus. Secondly, the passage we have on the overhead shows that the Word is God. And so that makes Jesus God. 
if that is true, is A equal B and B is equal to C and A is equal to C, then you can show that Jesus is God. We'll come back to this passage in the end and talk a little bit more about it, but that really just settles the issue if you accept what he says, that the Word was God. But look at some other statements. This is John 5 and verse 17 and 18. It says, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, just notice what's said. Jesus refers to God as my father. And they sought to kill him because they perceived that Jesus was making himself equal to God. Just by saying that God was his father, they understood that they, he was claiming to be God and making himself equal to God. I don't know that you can always equate son and father in the scriptures like we do, but if a man has a son, is he not of the same nature? And if, if a man is human and has a son, is not his son human also? And even though certainly the idea in the Son of God is not that God had a wife and they had a son and his name was Jesus, but still he's trying to get across to us that he is of the same nature. And he is calling himself the Son of God, and they recognize in that term that he's making himself equal to God. Equal in this particular passage is from a Greek word, esos, and it says it's similar in amount and kind. And so Jesus is claiming that he is equal to God when he says the Son of God. He's saying, I'm like God, and that means he's the same in kind and amount. Look also, if you would, to the book of John in the 10th chapter, in verse 31 through 33. Then the Jews took up stone again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you for my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself equal to God. They considered his remarks as blaspheming, that he is exalting himself or pulling God down, in this case, pulling him up, themselves up. What is it that he's saying? He's, they say you're being a man, make yourself God. Look back in 10 and 30 and you see what it was he said. I and my father are one. And from that statement, I and my father are one, they perceived, and rightly so I think, that he was making himself God. And they thought, you're exalting yourself too much or else you're bringing God down with that statement. And so that's blasphemy, and they, they wanted to stone him. 
But that's a statement in which Jesus, in essence, is saying, I am God. They recognize that. But look again at this time to the book of John in the 8th chapter in verse 58. Jesus said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He'd been discussing with these people, and Abraham's name came up. They were saying, we're Jews, we're of Abraham, trying to say, we don't need you. And Jesus answers by saying, before Abraham was, I am. And notice, they take up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them as, and so passed by. Why is it when Jesus says, I am, they want to stone him? Well, that is a statement that is just saying, I am. It, there's no I was or I will be in the future. It's saying, I am. I've always been. It's a way of saying, I'm eternal. That I've just always been. I have always been present is the idea. And you may remember back in the book of Exodus in the third chapter in verse 14 that Moses comes to God, and he's talking to God, and he says, who should I tell the people of Egypt that you are? And God answered by saying, you tell them, I am. And we understand in that passage that God was telling Moses, I'm eternal, I'm the eternal Father. And by the same token, when Jesus said to these people, I am, he was saying, I'm eternal. I'm not like you, that you have just started or, or shall come to an end. I am. I'm eternal, he says. That's the reason they picked up the stones to stone him, because, again, they perceived this to be blasphemy. When he said, I am, they understood what he was saying, that, that I'm eternal, and they understood that that meant that he was equal to God in some way. And so, again, they were going to stone him. They can. John, the 14th chapter, verse 8 through 10. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll suffice, it is sufficient to us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me and seen the, has seen the Father. Or how can you say, Show us the Father? So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the I and the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Notice that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You couldn't say that the way Jesus did unless he's deity, unless he's claiming to be of the same nature as the Father. Look at Matthew, the 26th chapter, in verse 63. This is Jesus before the priest. And it says, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now, he's not 
saying, I am God in those words. But that's the question. Tell us if you are the Son of God. Tell us if you are equal to God. And he says, it's as you said. He's affirming that that's right. I am the Son of God. Matthew 26 and 66, a little further down, they say, what do you think? And they answered and said, he deserves death. Why did they say he deserves death? Well, just remember back what we've already talked about, how that when he said, I am the Son of God, they said he's blaspheming. And so this is the same thing. He is affirming, I am the Son of God. They've asked him that, and he's affirmed it. And so now again, they're saying, this is blaspheming. You're claiming to be God, and they don't think he is. And so that's deserving of death. John 19 and verse 7, Jesus is before Pilate at this time. And Jesus answered him, talking about Pilate, we have a law, or or excuse me, the Jews answered Pilate and said, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And so again, Jesus has said, I'm the Son of God. Fast forward a little bit until the gospel age and Stephen is preaching the gospel and they're stoning him, you recall, because he preached the truth. But notice what happens in Acts 7, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen, and as he was calling on God, now notice he's calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In calling on God, he's calling on Jesus. Look at Philippians 2 and verse 5 and 6. Paul writes, said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so he speaks of him as being in the form of God, and he says that's not, that's not robbery. He's not taking something that's not his, is the idea. This the form of God that's used is defined as strong as by a nature. And so when Paul says he is of the nature of God or the mind of God and, and in the form of God, he is essence saying he is the very nature of God. He's deity. In fact, you could point out that some of the writers point out that this is perhaps the, the clearest of all statements that he's deity saying that he is of the nature or the form of God a little bit later in this same context verse 7 I think it is we're told that he humbled himself and became a, a servant and served us but then says because of that when he died Jesus or God highly exalted him And one of the things he says in that passage is he gave him a name above all names. I challenge you to think, what would that name be? What name is above all names? Well, if you're thinking it's got to be deity, I think you're thinking right. And we'll come back and say something else about that in a minute. Not only did Jesus 
claimed to be deity and people called him deity and he accepted that. But he showed that he was God by some of the actions that he took and by the things that he allowed to take place. One of the things is he accepted worship. We don't have all the passages on the overhead, but Hebrews 1 and verse 6, it tells us that the angels worshipped him when he came into the world. Matthew 2 and verse 11, the wise men came to him and they worshipped him on that occasion. Matthew 8 and verse 2, you have another man worshipping him. Matthew 14 and verse 33 and Matthew 28 and verse 17, all of these passages talk about people worshipping him. And the last one, even his disciples, they recognized who he was when he, after his resurrection and worshipped him. You can find occasions where we are to worship God and him only, Matthew 4. You can find occasions where Peter told Cornelius when he bowed down to him, he said, don't worship me, worship God. You can find where even John bowed in Revelations to an angel, and the angel tells him, stand up. can't worship me. God is the one that we worship. And if they worship Jesus, they thought he was God. And if he accepted it, either he was God or he accepted something that he shouldn't. Not only that, but Jesus forgives sin. We have the occasion in Matthew, the fifth chapter, where uh, a paralytic is brought by his friends. This is the case, you remember, that they can't get to Jesus, and so they climb up on the roof and remove the tiles and let the man that's paralyzed down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus says this, sees this, he tells them, your sins are forgiven. And he recognizes that the crowd... Uh, is taken back by him saying that they are, he's forgiven him of his sin. So then Jesus says, which is easier to say his sins are forgiven or to, to say arise and walk, but that you might know he told men, get up and walk, and the man did. But his whole point is he could forgive sins, and the healing wasn't as great as his forgiving of sins but he healed him so that he could see indeed he had all the power and the authority that he could heal and he could forgive sin. In Matthew, the, or excuse me, Luke the seventh chapter, this is the case that where Jesus is in the house of Simon a Pharisee. And there is a woman that comes in off the street that begins to wet his, Jesus' feet with the tears and dry them with his, her hair and anoints his feet with some precious oil. And Simon is thinking, if he was really God, he would know that she's a sinner and he'd stop this. And Jesus, perceiving his thoughts, said, Simon, said if somebody owes a great amount of money and somebody else owes even more and and somebody forgives them of their debts, who's going to have the most love? He said, well, I suppose the one that has the greatest debt. And he says, you've spoken correctly. 
And then he pointed out, he said, since I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't do anything to show hospitality particularly. He said, but this woman, this woman has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and anointed me with precious oil. And then he said, though her sins are many, they are forgiven. Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. But I can't forgive somebody's sins like that. I can forgive something personally against me, but I can't forgive their lifestyle and kind like Jesus is doing here so that they'll never answer to God about their life again. I want you also to look at John 20 and verse 28. This is after the resurrection, and you remember that Jesus appeared to some of the disciples, and they saw him, but Thomas wasn't there that day. So a week later, Thomas is there, and Thomas has made the statement in between, I won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead unless I can see him and put my hand in the side where the spear was and, and look at his hands and see the nail print. And so here are the disciples gathered again, and Jesus appears in the, in, in the room. And he tells Thomas, he said, Thomas, touch my side, look at it, look at my hand. And I don't know if Simon had to touch him at that point or not, but I know he believed. Because his words are, Thomas addressed the Lord saying, my Lord and my God. He recognized he was indeed my God, he said. You know what's really significant about that passage? That Thomas didn't just say, yes, Jesus, you're Lord, you're God. But Thomas said, my Lord, my God. We not only need to come to understand that Jesus is God or that Jesus is Lord, but we need to look at all the evidence and we need to come up with the same thought that Thomas did. Be my Lord, Jesus. Be my God, Jesus. But not only that, let me suggest to you the Old Testament passages declare Jesus to be God too. I have known this for some time, but I have been impressed with the number of times that I have found it in the Old Testament where Jesus is referred to under the term God or Jehovah, as we'll talk about in a minute. For instance, here's Psalm 46 and verse 6 and 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a sceptre of righteousness. It's the sceptre of your kingdom. You love righteousness and have hate iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the all of gladness more than your companions. Notice, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A sceptre of righteousness is your kingdom. This is something that's eternal. Who's he talking about? Well, this passage is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the first chapter, in verse 8 and 9, and it's God, the Father, 
that's being recorded saying, but to the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You're not going to get much more than that. God of heaven, the Father, is telling us to Jesus, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Speaking to Jesus, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, he said. If you believe the Scriptures, you can't doubt that he's God. Look at the book of Psalms in the 102nd chapter in verse 25 through verse 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the, of the earth, and heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. I want you to notice on this passage that it reads, of old you and the works of your hands and thy will but you. And so he keeps saying, you, 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 you. But the question is, who is this you? Well, look back one verse. I said, oh my God, do not take me or take away, take me away in the midst of of the days, your years are throughout all generations. He's talking about God. And if you look even closer, sometimes in that immediate context, he talks about Lord. All spelled with capital. But look at this. Hebrews, the first chapter in verse 10 through 12. Same context that we were in a while ago where this is God the Father saying something about the Son. And he quotes what we just read in the book of Psalms in the 102nd chapter, verse 12, saying, You, Lord, and look at how he spells that Lord. He's got it with capital letters. We'll come to this in a minute more, but when you're reading the Old Testament, if you're reading an American Standard or something, oftentimes you'll see the word Jehovah. It's translated from Yahweh. And now more modern translations don't just use the word Jehovah, they use the word Lord. Well, there's another word for Lord. And so you might see the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or you can see it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And if it's capitals, then that's that word Yahweh. It's not just Lord, it's Yahweh. I grew up using the American Standard. I changed when I got more into radio work because people were more familiar with the King James and they didn't suspect I was trying to pull some kind of nanakin on them when I used the American Standard. But I grew up and the American Standard uses the word Jehovah before the word Lord, that Yahweh. I grew up, though, thinking that Jesus was Jesus, and Jehovah was the God the Father. But through the grace of the Lord, I learned better that even the word Jehovah is talking also about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as I said several times in this, you would find it talks about the Lord in context of Psalms 102. And then the Hebrew writer, though it's not that word Yahweh, he does capitalize it, I think, showing that he thinks, or the translators were thinking, this is Jehovah. Look at Isaiah, the seventh chapter, in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. If you've got eyes to see with, there's a little footnote there, and if you could go back and hit that footnote, it'd say that Emmanuel means God with us. But you can turn to the New Testament in Matthew, the first chapter, in verse 23, where an angel appears to Joseph to tell him that the child that Mary's bearing is of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Behold, the virgin, and that this fulfill that prophecy, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he puts, which is translated, God with us. And so here's an angel telling us that God is with us, and he's talking about Jesus. Verse 25 says, you shall call this name Jesus. It's going to be awfully hard to deny that Jesus is God when he comes into this world to be called Emmanuel, which is to be said, God with us. Look at Isaiah, the 8th chapter, in verse 13 and 14. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and as a snare to an inheritance of Jerusalem. The question is, and notice he says, the Lord of hosts, and he uses this as L-O-R-D, all capitals, meaning this is talking about the one that we call Jehovah. And then look, if you would, to the book of, and, and that's just your, your words there, but then look, if you would, and ask yourself, he says this Lord is going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Do you ever remember reading in the New Testament about the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense? 1 Peter 2 and verse 7, Therefore to you who believe, he is the precious, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If you're familiar with Ephesians, you remember he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the foundation. And that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah in the 28th chapter where he talks about the stone, the foundation. And so it's applied unto Jesus, that part about being the chief cornerstone. But not only that, but look at this text. It says, he says, he goes on, he says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That passage in Isaiah the 8th chapter that's calling the Lord, Jehovah, a stone of stumbling is quoted in the New Testament and applied not to God the Father, but to the Son which means he is also Jehovah.
Isaiah 9 and verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. And I put that in red because we'll note that. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace, uh, and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish and judgment and justice from that time forward, even forward or forever. The zeal of the Lord of the host will perform this. That's talking about Jesus. Most everybody will agree that, but you just about have to when he talks about upon the throne of David, he's going to sit. That's the prophecy that's been made about Jesus, that he would sit upon the throne of David. And there's New Testament passages that talk about this. But notice what else it says. He says, mighty God. Here's an Old Testament passage talking about Jesus and says he is mighty God. Now there's some people will say, well, see, he's just a mighty God. We have passages that talk about the Father as being almighty God. Well, when you turn to the book of Isaiah in the 10th chapter, in verse 21 through 24, you read a passage that is talking about God the Father leading the children of Israel out of the land and so forth, and he calls him a mighty God. You know, if my heavenly Father is a mighty God, I don't think I would consider it an insult when they say that Jesus is a mighty God. It again is just to say he is God and he's powerful and mighty just like God the Father. Joel the second chapter in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, and notice again this is Lord, all capital letters, meaning calling on the name of Yahweh or Jehovah, shall be saved. For in the Mount of Zion in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord called. Now, what's significant is that this passage is quoted by Peter on the book of Acts in the second chapter on Pentecost to say that that Pentecost, that was this being fulfilled. And now, he says, whoever it is that calls on the name of the Lord shall be, fit, shall be saved. Well, in Acts 2 and verse 21, you have this passage, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter goes in and preaches about Jesus Christ, how that he, was, he came and lived and he was crucified, how he was raised from the dead, and how that he is Lord and Christ. But that's not the end of it. Because these people cry out when they learn that Jesus is Lord and Christ, they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, calling on the name of Jesus, or in the name of Jesus Christ. To repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now listen, to be saved, you've got to call on the name of God, or to call on the name of the Lord. Why is Peter telling them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus? unless Jesus is Lord. Interesting, when you look to the book of Acts in the 22nd chapter in verse 16, Paul is talking about his conversion, and he says that 
Ananias came to him and said, Why tearest thou arise and be baptized, calling on the name of, of him? And so when you repent and you're baptized, as the Scriptures teach, in the name of Jesus, that's calling on the name of the Lord. He's not talking about all we have to do is just say, Lord, Lord. Matthew 7 would say, that's not true because he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name and do many mighty works? But I'll say to you, I never knew you. It's he that doeth the will of God that should be honored. And so it's not just a matter of saying, Lord. It is a matter of calling upon him to save us. And when you repent and you are baptized in the name of Jesus, you're calling on him. You're looking to him to be the Savior. But you're also calling on the Lord, Jehovah. That's who Jesus is and who he's talking about in this passage. Let me also suggest to you some answers to some objections that are oftentimes raised. I quoted John 1, verse 1, or read it in the very beginning, and I told you that settles it, really. That in the beginning was the Word, knowing that that Word became flesh, we know that it's Jesus. The Word was with God, talking about God the Father. There's two persons involved there. And then he says, and the Word was God. And that should clear everything up. But there are some, particularly the New World Translation, that says originally the Word was and the Word was with God and the Word was not the God or God, but a God. And their thoughts are that, that yeah, you have God the Father, but then you have this lesser person who's really not a God, but we call him a God. Same word in the Greek for he was with God as when it says he was God. But they say, nah, we're going to put A in there. One translation, you may find some others, very few though, that would translate it a God. But I looked in the New King James, King James, American Standard, New American Standard, English Standard, Revised Standard, even the NIV, and the Living Bible. And all of them say, was God, not the God. Or not a God, rather. And if you look at the Greek text itself, you'll find there's not an article there in front of God in that passage. Now, earlier there may be, but when he says the word was God, there's no article there, a, an, or anything like that. And so now they say, well, it's a grammatical reading. It's just a rule of grammar that uh, when it comes like that, when you already have it, named up here and now it's named again. You just have to translate it. A. Well, there are some scholars like Robinson, if you're familiar with Robinson Word book, or Metzner, who's recognized as a great Greek scholar. 
They say that's not true. That's not so. And if it was true, the Jehovah Witnesses have a problem because look at how they translate God in these passages. John 1.6, he says, a representative of God. There's no article there. But they don't translate that one, a God. They just say, he's a representative. It's a representative of God. 1.12, to become God's children. Same thing. There's no definite article there. But they don't throw that in there and say, well, we've got to put an A in there now. John 1.13, from are you born and from God. They don't put a God there. No man has seen God. They don't say no man has seen a God. Not very consistent. And then if you look at John 19 and verse 21 in particular, it's not talking about and using the word God, but you use another noun, king. It says, however, the chief priest of the Jews began to say to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he says, I am king of the Jews. Now, this one is very parallel to John 1.1, even having the predicate before the actual subject, like John 1.1 does in that last phrase. And so if they were going to be consistent, they would say, right, not that he is king, but he is a king of the Jews. So they didn't see any need to do it on that occasion. And so what you get is that Jesus was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also some will argue that Jesus is a created being. And they find passages like Revelations 3.14, which says, in the beginning of creation, or the beginning of creation, talking about Jesus. That sounds good. The beginning of creation. He's the first to be created. Well, that's good until you look at that Greek word and find out it can mean source. And isn't that what the Scriptures teach us over and over and over, that this world came into existence because Jesus created it? He is the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation. And then Ephesians the first, or Colossians, the first chapter in verse 15, it talks about him being the firstborn of creation. And so they say, well, you see, that necessitates him being created, and it's just that he is the first of the creation. And then he went on to create everything else. Listen to Colossians 1 for a moment in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That's the purpose of that firstborn of creation. It's to say he created everything. He has more preeminence than they do. And you find cases like where Abraham has Ishmael, and then he has Isaac, but Isaac is called the firstborn. And you have tribes of Israel that wasn't the first one, but it's called the firstborn. 
because it's trying to show that it's elevated and, and it received the preeminence. And that's what Jesus is. But I want to show you something else. Jesus, we've already said, is the I am, which means I never wasn't. I've always been here. There's no creating Jesus. He is God. He just is. And he said that. And then you find in Revelation 1.17, Jesus is the first and the last. What do you mean by first and last? I'll tell you that same phrase is used of God, and what it talks about is that he just was. There wasn't anything that created him. He just was. And if that's what it means when it talks about God, why doesn't it mean that when it talks about Jesus? Or in the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, when he says the Alpha and Omega, and just keep in mind, Alpha is the first of the Greek letters, and Omega is the last. And so again, it's the first and last. And that's his way of saying eternal. Wasn't created. He's eternal. And Micah 5, 2 gives a prophecy of Jesus and talks about him being from old, from everlasting. Jesus wasn't created. He's always been as the Son of God or as deity and as the Word. Maybe you're going to ask, what does all this mean? What difference does it make? Well, first of all, remember whoever be saved must confess or must call on the name of Jehovah. If you're putting your trust in Jesus and he's not Jehovah, you wouldn't be saved. But if you are trusting Jesus as being Jehovah and you're calling upon him the way he talks about by repenting and being baptized, then it will save you. But secondly, let me suggest to you that by Jesus being God, it's like he said to Thomas, you've seen God because you've seen me. We haven't looked upon Jesus. He's been gone too long before we've been here. But we could say by knowing Jesus and how he acted and did, we know how we need to act and do. I can look at the temptations that we studied this morning and I can see how Jesus answered the Satan on the temptation. And I can think that's the way I need to answer temptation with the word of God. I know Jesus. I can know him. And therefore, I can know how God would act under circumstances like I'm under. And then doesn't it make you appreciate your salvation even more? When you think about that that person on the cross, that wasn't just a good guy. That was God come down to earth clothed in flesh, allowing himself to be nailed to a cross so that I could have salvation. Hard to comprehend. But if we're just viewing that as just some man, I don't know that we're going to make it. But if we recognize that that's God that was on that cross in the flesh, and that he's now back in heaven to make intercessions for me. 
plead my case before God the Father. What a precious thought that is. I hope that you've come to understand, I doubt very seriously that many in this audience doubted that Jesus was God. But maybe you've got a better understanding of it. Maybe you could more defend the idea, somebody challenged the idea that Jesus is not God. And I'll tell you that in our world, we're going to have more and more people that are going to rise up to, to say that he wasn't really God. And so we're going to need to learn to show and convict the gainsayer. But mainly this evening, know that that was God on that cross. And he died so that you could be saved. If you'll call on his name, and you call on his name by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus, rising up to walk in newness of life. And you can call to him in prayer if you've already done that but gone astray because he's God. He can hear you and he can forgive you. So because he's God, we all could leave here with the hope of salvation this evening if we'll just claim it. You're subject and we can help you. We invite you to come as together we stand and sing.